0: I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Today, win Pro Nats, our finale of this series. We're going to talk about what to do in the month leading up to the race. You've achieved the concept. You've executed that three-week training block in May. What do you do next? We're going to talk about the race itself. How do you get into the bike race to win the bike race? What does that look like? What's the strategy to get there? If you're enjoying the podcast, please recommend it to somebody who you think would enjoy kinds of conversations and questions we explore here. You can follow us on Instagram at black cats run. And we're also available for consultation. Reach out to us via DM on the Instagram page. We'd be happy to talk to people about how you can apply the concepts we talk about on this podcast to your training. Let's get into today's episode. You've done it. You've executed the concept. Three weeks, training block in May. You're feeling strong. It was easy. It was straightforward. You did something that six or eight months ago seemed outrageous, intense, impossible, you realize that you really have transformed your physical fitness. What do you do now? You still have to show up at the race, you still have to find a way to compete correctly, and you still have to find a way to bring this fitness over that last four week period. Sometimes, as athletes, the end is the hardest part. To break this down, we're going to talk about this in two sections. First, we're going to talk about that final four-week period or phase. How are we going from having completed the fitness development that we're saying is either culminating in, or we could also think about it as being something that is reflected by um, what we're trying to accomplish in terms of that critical training goal. Right, that three week period with those sessions, right, the longer days, the combination of the running and the riding and the lifting. Now, what's critical about that isn't even so much that there's some sort of specific transformative benefit, but the process over the six to eight months that got you to the point where you could do that at all, that's where the transformation occurred. And that by hanging that out, In front of yourself and saying, this is what I need to be able to do. We were able to organize our fitness and the development of our fitness in a way that I don't think we're able to do if we just say, I need to be ready for this specific race. If you think all the way back to the first part of this series, Win Pro Nats, one of the things that we tried to establish is the limitation of thinking about the race and the idea of high intensity training, you know, organizing that around a VO2 max concept as being inherently limiting, right? And by moving away from that and framing our target in a different context, what happens is all of our strategies and processes have to change because the idea of executing a challenging, a kind of a, this is something I can't currently do, or it looks impossible kind of a training concept leads to very different incentives in terms of our behavior and how we're going to approach and think about what we're doing as athletes, versus you know, the idea of, well, it's a three-hour race or a three-and-a-half-hour race, or even if it's a four-hour race, it's still much easier to imagine doing that. And that causes us to then think about, well, what about the intensity? How am I addressing or responding to that component? So we've moved outside of that space, and because of that, we're going to see that this is additionally beneficial. If you've listened to our light bulb burst episodes, and we're going to continue to talk about this, I think, kind of indefinitely through the podcast, because it's such a prevalent theme of how do we identify the right training intensity, one of the concepts that we would want to have applied is this idea of a lactate threshold development process. And that's essentially stipulating that the goal is to take watts and make them as easy to produce as possible. And that that's not something that's achieved by some sort of voodoofication of, well, do six times four minutes at quote unquote, VO2 max. And we've mentioned it in other episodes, but we haven't brought it up in this series yet. So this is probably a good point, you know, in this final episode to emphasize that um, the VO2 max thing is maybe a little bit of a fallacy. Steve Magnus wrote a really good um, summary on the history of the concept and the kind of evidence or lack thereof for the concept of VO2 max um, on his Science of Running uh, website. And one of the things that he points out is some um, research from uh, Tim Noakes, who has found that I think it's 53 or 52% of people who take a VO2 max test don't actually exhibit that kind of like plateau or leveling off of oxygen uptake, which is one of the criteria to identify VO2 max. So the problem with using these kinds of abstract criteria like that is that we're looking at something that's contrived, right? Whereas that training block goal, well, that's something that's tangible, like you're doing that, you're actually doing it. And that's not something you could do when you started. So if you can do it later, then obviously that's shifted. The reality is at the beginning of this process of building towards guaranteeing yourself a win at the pro national road race, you know, you could have gone out and wrecked yourself for six, four minute intervals. Okay. So the fact that you're continuing to do that, um, that's not a substantive transformation, okay you might be producing more watts but again the idea that that's somehow a leading to a improvement in vo2 max b that the vo2 max as a concept is even the limiting factor um you know it becomes really uh, convoluted right and we want something that's tangible and actionable and the idea of working towards a training concept like that is is really critical and i think outlining that philosophically is really important because i think you know, one of the limitations for us as athletes is that when we're trying to think about, well, what are we doing? How are we getting from A to B? There's this sense of like, well, give me the, you know, what is the actionable thing? Give me the specific, you know, elementary thing that I can just go out and implement, right? Put it in my training peaks. Um, I'll find it on my bike computer and I'll follow it, right? Or I'll upload it to my watch and I'll do it. And I think there's this idea that is celebrated way too much of like eliminate the thinking and just make it automatic. I don't want to have to think about what I do. Okay. I, th- I think that's fine if you don't want to, but I think the reality is if you're not going to think about what you're doing, um, you can't do that without also limiting your ability to perform. You can certainly do physical fitness activities without thinking. Um, that's very possible, but the reality is you're not going to be as good as you could be, um, if you didn't limit those things. So, when we're thinking about this, right, extending that idea of we need to understand, have deep, meaningful, holistic understanding, and that understanding is an actionable, useful thing. And I think that's a limitation of, um, you know, the internet. My brother asked uh, ChatGPT, for example, the other day about lactate threshold. And it, you know, to me, I think the AI stuff by the way, I'm sure everybody's very concerned about my opinion about AI, so I'm not going to throw that out there um, as a caveat here. Um, I think that AI is honestly quite amusing, that people are worried about artificial uh, intelligence. Um, what about the artificial intelligence uh, that runs amok among the human population every single year and has for centuries upon centuries causing chaos and problems and destruction? And we sort of seem relatively content to allow that to persist, but then the idea of a more complex, um, you know, computer tool is, sends people into a tailspin. But his sort of search of the lactate threshold just sort of regurgitated kind of the most frequent results that you find for that kind of stuff, right? And I think that AI concept represents. What you get when you don't think when you don't think you end up with the most commonly said thing and the most commonly said thing is usually going to be very average and winning the national championship is not an average result and if you do average things you're going to tend to achieve about the average and if you are content with that that's fine. But just go into that with the understanding. And I think it would be important to have that understanding because if you don't, then you're going to set yourself up for mental anguish and uh, agony and self-doubt. And I think a lot of people look at that and they say, well, you know, I couldn't execute at the national championship. I need to go back. I need to, you know, spend more time with my head in the puke bucket. And it's like, well, maybe the problem is that you're thinking of this in terms of a puke bucket in the first place. So that was kind of the most important you know, shift that we did. And hopefully, right, what has happened, and I would say, really, in, or if you're able to do that three-week training concept in the prescribed manner, then there's no way this couldn't have happened. But hopefully, what we're going to see here is a substantive and drastic change in your lactate threshold. Now, you could counter me here, maybe, and you could try to say, well, so you're going to dismiss VO2 max, Um, but then you're going to say use lactate threshold. Well, the thing about lactate threshold is the issue there is you have to identify it correctly. And the characteristic on that lactate curve that you want to be looking at is you're saying, well, how many watts can I do before I start to accumulate the lactate? Not this arbitrary 2 millimole or 4 millimole point or this, well, anaerobic capacity that, you know, trying to define these um, capacities um, or these potentialities of performance of things after the point in which the lactate has started to accumulate. Well, then you're just looking at well, how hard can I work? Maybe when I'm already well over the point in which my mitochondrial capacity has, you know, peaked in what it's able to do, right? Because that's what the accumulating lactate in the blood is telling us is happening. So what we're looking at is we want to say, so maybe if in Labor Day weekend you did a test, maybe you could do 180 watts. Well, maybe now you're doing 280 watts. And I think that kind of a change, um, especially if you're somebody for whom you're, this kind of a training approach would be an uh, innovation or a shift in how you've approached things as compared to the past, I think that this kind of a change is like very realistic and very achievable and very attainable. Um if you're implementing it correctly, right? Because that's really the biggest limitation with training. You know, I would refer you to um, uh, one of our episodes where we talked about the lactate threshold, and there's some a graph on this on our uh, Instagram page. You know, think about this as a production possibilities. You know, over three weeks of VO2 max, you might accumulate two hours of that intensity, versus you might be able to accumulate. You know, as much as 17 hours of lactate threshold intensity. And that's why we're going to see a significant transformation or change over this time scale in our training and preparation because we are making far more of an impact. Okay, that's the, you know, if you compare 30 minutes of lactate threshold to 30 minutes of VO2 max, maybe in the short term there's additional cognitive and central nervous system things that are happening at the super lactate states. Um, super lactate threshold states that aren't happening, maybe, or aren't happening to the same degree with those infralactate threshold states. But we're not looking at that scale. We're not training in the context of a study. We're training in the context of actual real world training. And, you know, the best endurance athletes are not getting good because they're using just this strict VO2 max protocol. And for runners out there who have been following along Um, with this particular series, you're probably aware of how, you know, running has kind of shifted away from those very specific physiological energy system concepts and has brought back, once again, brought back more of the, you know, in aggregate, I need to be running a lot kind of concept. And even though people are maybe applying that somewhat ineptly or ineffectively, we're still seeing a huge improvement in results because there's just more benefit when you're doing a volume of work Um, because when volume goes up, you know, intensity at some point has to go down. So one of the ways you can kind of manage the intensity of training essentially is to bring it down through increasing volume because in order to execute that volume, you can only be so intense. And there's a tipping point where you're doing enough volume the intensity can't be that high and that's one of those things where with running right once you get your running to where it's at least an hour or you're running for an hour plus well the reality is you're not in danger essentially of of training too hard but if you're doing runs of 30 to 45 minutes it actually is pretty easy to slip into the habit of just i'm going to go out and crush this and especially if you haven't been running um, that's a huge limiting factor and i would I don't know if we would say caution, but really sort of like emphasize that, you know, you can not get the benefit of this stuff because you're applying too much intensity. And if you're a cyclist trying to do running, you know, you have to work within your limitation. That might be 10 minute pace. And just because you could run 7.30 pace doesn't mean that, you know, you're losing something by doing 10 minute pace. You're probably actually losing something by doing 7.30 pace, right? So working within those limits is another concept that we're trying to look at here because we're thinking about what is most effective in terms of practice. And I think that, you know, the 10,000 hour concept, which I think is attributable to, you know, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books. I don't think that that's this sort of like empirical hard and fast thing, but I think the observation there is that, you know, people are doing a lot of time. It's spending a lot of time over time that's effective. And if you're going to spend a lot of time over time, then things have to generally feel good and be positive Um, in terms of how we engage. We have to feel competent. You know, I give you an example that um, it's been unseasonably warm because I guess people don't understand um, the impact of the carbon dioxide to oxygen ratio in the atmosphere, and so we're continuing to experience a climatological shift. I mean, you know, newsflash, the Earth's climate historically has never been stable and that that has caused multiple mass extinction events uh we're in a unique position where we can actually use our understanding of science and our capacity for technology um and you know environmental management actually to maintain a kind of perpetual state of equilibrium by looking at that ratio. But you know there has to be like popular will and understanding that that's the case so uh in the short term um rather than you know give in to sort of crippling anxiety while you wait for people to get their collective heads out of their asses um, and recognize this uh, issue for what it is and take the appropriate steps, I'm just going to sort of happily and mindlessly enjoy the occasional 55 degree day uh, in New England in February. And so as a consequence, I rode uh, outside the other day after work and it's, you go out and uh, so okay, I'm going to try to do lactate threshold intensity for 30 to 40 minutes on this ride. And I'm only going to probably ride for maybe about an hour because it still still gets dark relatively early compared to the spring and the summer. So, you know, you go and and you start doing this and it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel like the power on the trainer is translating to the outdoors, right? And that, that concept, right, of like, how do you know if you're getting better, I think can be a limiting factor for us. Because in this instance of just doing this one ride, you know, I feel uncomfortable, it doesn't feel right, my legs are sort of achy, I don't feel the way I would like to feel going up climbs. And I think that in general, one of the issues that we have is when we feel like we're doing training that's supposed to be really good or more effective than we've done in the past or we're really excited about what we're doing, we start to sort of create an expectation of translation. And just because you've developed it doesn't mean it's going to immediately go out and actualize. And I think that's where you can get a false negative, right? Where you can be like, okay, wow, just over the course of one 60 minute ride, not feeling the kinds of, you know, things that you've sort of arbitrarily decided, well, okay, developing essentially in your head, this set of understandings um, of, well, this is how I should feel is going to be a limiting factor. And then it can cause you to be like, okay, well, I'm too fat. I guess I wouldn't. I'd be going uphill better if I lost more, even more weight, or you know, I need to really go out and and smash it because when I try to go hard, it doesn't feel right. And what is going to happen is we're going to default back to these mindsets. And this idea of defaulting to mindset brings us to um, our first point of what are we trying to do between executing this training concept in May, that three-week block and the championship race at the end of June. Number one, we don't want to think about this in terms of peaking, okay? Uh, Peaking is not a thing that works, okay? It's not real. It's an illusion. Peaking happens when people have created too much fatigue, especially like muscular fatigue, where they're just sort of constantly creating and inducing muscular fatigue. And then when you finally give yourself an opportunity to actually reduce that muscular fatigue, all of a sudden you're going to be able to go out and go harder and produce more power. Okay. Now the theory that would justify that then would have to be a theory which is arguing that, well, creating and then sustaining above a certain level of muscular fatigue is somehow more beneficial. And that's not true because number one, it's going to decrease the extent to which we feel good and want to engage with that activity. Um, you know, just again that example of just that one ride that I did. You know, you know it was a nice afternoon, right? Rather than being like, "Oh, it's so nice to do an outside ride after having been doing a lot of riding on the trainer for the past couple of months," instead you walk away from that and being like, "Wow, what's wrong with me? Like, I suck at the bike, like big time, right?" And just that one thing, right, starts can can. You see where, right, you can start to establish that trajectory of self-doubt, negativity, then the need to sort of test yourself or do harder things and, like, try to, you know, push your your brain and all of this, like, default sorts of, like, old, um, old school mindsets in terms of that, you know, okay, I need to apply discipline, I need to subdue my body to my will. But, you know, we want to stay away from those kinds of uh, responses to the engagement of what we're doing here because that's not going to be effective. And so that's one issue with inducing muscular fatigue. Um, And when we do this concept, right, there's a difference between being like, wow, I really want to take naps and I'm really hungry and like, I'm just sort of generally tired versus the man, every time I go up the stairs, you know, I feel like by the time I get to the top of the stairs, my muscles are going to explode, you know, and I've done plenty of rides in particular, but also, uh, running sessions over the years where I've had that, and getting to that state doesn't really contribute to any like substantive benefit. There might be sort of an immediate short-term adjustment to that intensity where you become as efficient and comfortable as you can at that intensity, but you don't actually end up really going any faster. You just feel a little bit more comfortable at that point. So, But what that can do, right, is it can create the optical illusion that peaking is somehow an effective intervention, and that's unfortunately... Um, but that's simply not the case. So and we don't want to be in that position anyway because if you are training in this way, you're not compiling this massive amount of fatigue, which you then somehow need to, you know, shed like a snake skin um, and be reborn as, you know this elite incredible performer. Um, that potential is should be there and should be growing and should be expressed as you go along, right? I mean, like, you know, with a lactate threshold as one way to kind of track, fitness transformation, and that's why we like lactate threshold is because it's literally saying, um, what's your me- your metabolic or your mitochondrial capacity um, at given power, right? That's what it's measuring and looking at. And if you're measuring that every four, six, or eight weeks, then you're going to be getting an insight into a level of transformation over a long period of time, right? And the reality is, You know, if those watts get easier, that's what counts. Okay. Not this sort of difficult to prove thing of like, well, maybe this VO2 max thing, which probably isn't even real, but maybe that's improving, but you can't differentiate that because it just feels so god awful. Okay. And in racing, what you want to do is you want to stay out of that level of exertion. The person who wins is the person who tries the least. So we shouldn't be looking for peaking because peaking is a compensatory strategy for a bad fatigue intensive training process um, the second issue with this by the way is the probability of injury okay and then you know the third issue with it is like trade-off wise it's like the opportunity cost doesn't support it because you just can't train very much and you can't train really effectively and when I looked at the data uh, for the 2021 women's um, pro-national road race in terms of what people had done January, um through into june for training i would say the majority of people were not even averaging 90 minutes a day and one thing you could look at and be like wow that's lazy well i don't think i think that might be an oversimplification um i think that you know you could look at it and you can say okay wow maybe people are just like getting out there and applying these really demanding training sessions these really extreme workouts and as a consequence of that they're not accumulating very much riding and then as a further consequence of that You know, they're struggling when they're going to the race through no fault of their own. I think they're probably doing the best they can do with the fitness that they created, right? It's a strategic issue. Okay. Um, By the time you get to Memorial Day weekend, instead of saying peaking, you want to be saying the hay is already in the barn. And what that leads to is this idea of what we want to be doing is maintaining our fitness. Okay. So, how do we maintain fitness once we've developed it? Because that's kind of a different concept for a lot of people all right and i think this comes from a combination of different things but i think we can establish i think first as overview of like essentially we're trying to get to the point where we're not now that we're really fit okay because it's going to become tempting because you're going to be really strong and you're going to be feeling confident um it's going to be tempting to go out and sort of demonstrate to yourself or to other people or to strava Uh, what you can do. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and exert yourself, but if you go out and you exert yourself too intensively, too frequently, you're going to build up muscular fatigue. And then when you build up muscular fatigue, it takes time for that to go away, and now you can start to feel uneven. And maybe you aren't going to change that core level of fitness, but it could then, in turn, erode that confidence. And instead of confidence, when we're thinking about maintaining I think what we want to be thinking about is the idea of competence, not confidence, competence. So what is competence and how is that different from confidence? I think confidence is this idea of trying to tap into a sense of self-esteem and like trying to feel good about yourself and a part of that is like looking in a sense for what is the regard that other people do or do not have for me as an individual um, in the context of this thing that I'm trying to do or perform at. And what we want to be recognizing is that's a pretty fragile thing, is we don't want to tie our sense of self to other people's perspective of who we are, because then we're going to be changing our behavior in order to solicit that feedback. And, you know, I think a lot of people talk about being confident, but a lot of people who talk about being confident, you know, really aren't confident in the way that we actually want to get to. And so that's why we make a differentiation here. And we say, well, what about competence? Competence, I say, if we think of Maslow's hierarchy, um, self-esteem being more maybe related to confidence is the level below the top tier of Maslow's hierarchy. And the top tier of that is self-actualization. Okay. And self-actualization is when you're doing things or achieving things in a creative or a You know, self directed sense and developing a feeling of mastery or achieving your full potential. And that idea of competence is something that hopefully we have engendered right through this process. So instead of with a VO2 max training model, you're trying to create confidence because you're trying to look and say, well, I did, I'm doing these really hard workouts, but you're not feeling competent because you're never competent in those workouts because you're always way beyond your capacity. To, to manage stuff in a meaningful um, and effective and controlled way. You're literally um, driving yourself to the point of failure. You're going way beyond your proficiency, which is the opposite of what effective practice towards improvement really is. Effective practice towards improvement means staying within that capacity state as much as possible. With competence, that's something that we're developing. And the lactate threshold uh, model that um, you know we're talking about here, but also in the podcast in general, is something that I think is a tool to try to access that or think about that, right? Because if you can say, okay, I could do 180 watts easily, but now I can do 280 watts easily, you know, that's different. And when Jillian Bennett and I talk about, you know, training and what we're trying to work towards, you know, that's really the kind of ideas. Can we get to where we can do things that maybe were hard in the past but do them easily. And that's different from saying, can we increase how much we can do, but always you know, staying at the state that's really hard, right? Instead we're saying, let's make things that are really hard easy. And that's that concept. And so we're saying lactate threshold is a tool to try to conceptualize in part that overall concept of shifting that competency level of the athlete, of the individual performer. And that when you are doing this training, right, when you've done that three weeks, you should feel competent because doing that is a form of self-actualization, you have transcended in terms of your sense of self, okay? Instead of continuing to do the same VO2 max protocol for month after month after month. Um, That's not transformative. You're just doing the same thing. The watts may change. um, And the reality is, they'll be inconsistent. You're going to be failing a lot of those workouts. None of that helps with developing competence. But when you do something that you couldn't do before, that's a new level of competence. And competence is something that's stable. Okay, peaking is not stable, maintaining is stable. Confidence isn't stable, competence is stable. Okay. So this idea of stability. Okay. And that's what we're working towards is how we're trying to be stable with this level of fitness. And it's not something that is in imminent danger of collapsing. Like we have to like work hard to break it down. But you know, the problem is like, you know, a kid with a new toy, you know, when you've really gotten to this point where you've sort of fully reached homeostasis within this model of training, that becomes really significant and Um, I also think just mentally stimulating and engaging and not in a bad way, per se, provided we know how to engage with that, right? And that it it can engage us versus we can engage with it, right? Are we going to get sucked into that vortex of, oh, my goodness, I'm so strong and I can do this and I can do that. And we want to go out and sort of like, you know, reap what we've sown. But what we're saying is we need to be saving that, you know, for... Our our goal, which is the the pro national race, but people can get in really good shape, um, and then they can sort of fall apart. Um, and it doesn't mean that you want to quote unquote time this so that you're only you know quote unquote peaking at the race. That's not true, right? It's good to get there, um, and I don't think it's like inevitable that people are going to just you know blow up their their fitness by just using it all up and then introducing a bunch of fatigue, and then they're just tired because they got too, you know, trigger happy with with applying their fitness. I think if you just have that awareness, I think it's pretty easy to have that self-discipline because you should be motivated by the national championship goal. And another differentiation here um, is that to think about there are the pure physiological factors versus sort of the cognitive slash central nervous system factors or the hybrid Uh, crossover between physiology, cognitive and central nervous system, like the central governor. So to go out and and apply that fitness, like, you know, we want to go out and, you know, use that energy, right? You know, do some races, go out and try to set some QOMs, okay? Uh, Or better yet, maybe do a little bit of both, but do it in like a reasonable way. You know, pick a day or two a week where you go and you try to set a QOM, go find a race to do, Okay. And then do some more riding after or go out and jog for 50 minutes before, you know, the race, if it's a criterium, right? Like keep it in the context of what you're trying to accomplish overall. And, you know, you might, if you haven't been racing, and I don't think there should be a prohibition on racing during this development process. I think that's absurd. I think the racing is good. It's just folding it in in the right way. And then ideally, you know, I think with that three week block, you want to sort of be like, okay, this is where I need to do this training period for three weeks, so I'm not going to maybe have a race um, in that window, per se. Although there's certainly an argument to be made of how you could incorporate those in there, provided you had the right approach. So but when we're thinking about this and what we're trying to apply um, and do in terms of this is right, we want to say, okay, we want to make sure that our cognitive capacity, that the central nervous system and the physiology is all in sync. Like that feeling, you know, I had going out to ride. The reality is I know rationally that that's just a product of, okay, when you go and you, you know, do physical exercise in a shifted environment, um, it's going to feel different. Okay. And because it's not immediately familiar, it can create this illusion of not being well adjusted. Okay. But if I go out and I do a couple rides in a row, you know, then all of a sudden it starts to feel normal. And I used to Feel this too when I uh, used to uh, swim competitively. And when I was on the swim team, I would go from running cross country to swimming. And then, you know, the first couple sessions in the pool, I felt like I couldn't really swim properly. It didn't feel quite right. But we can access that kind of adjustment in training or racing more effectively than we can with these very specific, um, you know, theoretical theoretically driven, you know, high intensity interval structures, go out and just do some efforts on a ride, okay? You know, go out, access that energy state to the extent that you find feels comfortable. And then when you're sick of it, just stop. Don't think that the benefit happens after you're sick of it. The benefit stops after the benefit stops after you're sick of it, right? I can't emphasize that clearly enough. The benefit stops after you are sick of it. We want to stay away from that point. Because um, in this month, right, what we're trying to do is we're trying to trim back the overload factor to this stuff. And that could be things like uh, if there's big hills that make you tired, trim back that elevation. Okay, Keeping your training tempo under control. You want to finish your rides feeling good. You don't want to be finishing rides feeling really tired. There's one thing to go out and make some efforts and, you know, do some sprinting. You know, do some hard efforts up some climbs um, on your loops, right? You know, there, there are particular segments that you've been like, man, I really want to see what I can do on that. Go out and do that. But that fatigue should be stuff recoverable within the ride. It shouldn't be something that you get to the end of the ride and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so more dead than I was in the past. And it shouldn't be kind of a concept of like, oh my goodness, you know, I just want to like, you know, sit in a wheelchair <laughs> the next day because I've totally wrecked myself. Um, there's no benefit to that, right? The only context in which that would happen is if you're in a race where you really had to like overextend. And we're also hoping that our fitness is such that we're not even going to feel like that after we win the national championship. Because I would argue that the probability that um you can reach that point of overextension and win the national championship, that's a really low probability win. That's winning through circumstance um, not through, you know, uh, I guess we might say like um, strategic vision or planning, right? And that can happen, right? People win races all the time. Maybe most races are are won um, as much despite of people's preparation as it is because of any particular master plan or, or master stroke. So it's not about discovering either kind of this like super good feeling or, you know, feeling really bad. Um, because we should be in homeostasis and you should feel surprisingly normal. And if anything, you might feel restless um, because you might be have gotten so used to sort of a general level of, again, not acute muscular fatigue, but just the real kind of training fatigue. Real training fatigue is just being tired. It's wanting to sleep more. It's you know always finding yourself in front of the pantry or the refrigerator, right in search of energy, in search of rest. Okay, And now that's probably not going to be there as much because you shouldn't be applying a significant load. You should only be running your long run to the point that's comfortable, right? So maybe that would be 15 miles, okay? You should only be doing your long rise to the point that's comfortable. Maybe that's 60 miles, okay? It doesn't much matter. There's no magic numbers, but it's about pulling it back enough that you're feeling good. And our hope is that, you know, after all, that the national championship road race for you is going to feel like a ride, not a race. It needs to feel like a ride. And in some ways that can be underwhelming because, you know, we want to have this like epic battle. But if you're in epic battle, you're probably just, you know, waiting to get blown out the back. Um, And that's that differential of the actionable threshold, which basically means we want to have as high a percentage of the work of the race to be as low a percentage of our lactate threshold as possible, and when that's the case, we get into that actionable threshold state where you feel good, you feel powerful, you feel in control. You know, you're, you're working, you're not going easy, but it feels easy because your level of competence is so high, right? And competence is also physiological. It's not just a a mind state that you're winding yourself up to. Um, it's genuinely physically grounded in the fitness development. And if we've done this, then we've broken the VO2 max paradigm. I know that right now, there are people killing themselves with VO2 max training, and they, you know, genuinely think that's going to make a difference. And I would encourage those people to really look at your data to really think about what has your process been? Have you really made significant improvements? You know, 10 watts or 20 watts isn't a significant improvement. And if you're scaling that on FTP, in the case of cyclists, um, like, you know, for runners, what's great about running is it's easy to tell you're not getting better because your, your times suck. But in cycling, it's sort of difficult to, to see that. But if you're scaling that on FTP, like, you can show and improve FTP, but FTP is absolutely useless, Um, frankly, one of the biggest problems is that like, you can't like FTP is kind of the point where if you work any harder than that, you're just going to blow up. So you're not going to actually race at FTP. So you can be like, oh, I have these FTP watts and it's like, okay. So that's just like, if there was like a long hill, you know, that might be kind of like plus or minus what you could do if there was a hill for like, you know, 10 to 30 minutes or something, you know, towards the end of a race. And you might not even be able to get to that if you're tired Anyway, but like when you're at that state, you can't accelerate over that state. So that's useless um, to have when you go to a road race or any kind of race in general. You want to look at how much can I do and have it be easy. And so hopefully now we're going to be getting to this hill in the race to the Sherrod Road Climb. And that's going to be the only part of race where we're actually doing any work. And the people with the VO2max training, uh, they're going to be working way harder the whole way. So maybe, and I don't think this is true if we're training for six to eight months, you know, uh, maybe if there was a six to eight weeks of training, maybe they could sort of jump out and get a little bit of a initial rush on that ability to go up the climb fast. But, you know, even if the national championship was just, you know, a bunch sprint up the Sherrod Road Climb, I say, well, you don't, there's no rule that says you can only train for six weeks. So you go back six to eight months, you apply the right method, you work towards the concept, and you're going to blow these people out of the water. Um, so when you're doing this, okay, it's hard to prescribe really exactly, right? This would be on an individual basis. I'd have to know the athlete, right? We'd have to know what their schedule is in terms of Um, you know, the race, other races they have, etc. But we want to not prove ourselves and we want to just keep doing normal stuff, right? We want to feel normal. We want to feel good. Um, We are strong, okay? And it's not about now conjuring up a genie from the water bottle to grant us three wishes, um, you know, in this last phase and pull out the magic workouts. Uh, That's not true. Like the hay is already in the barn. Let's talk about the race itself. What do we want to be doing or thinking about as we're doing the actual competition? So I think before we even talk about actually being in the race and how we want to approach it, I think One thing that's really important to think about um, is the gearing, honestly. So I think absolutely there's no reason why anybody should be racing road bike racing in any format without an 1134 cassette. I think that there are a lot of historical, um, I guess, motivations in terms of what the significance is of using different gearing and You know, traditionally, what that says about your your competence or your capacity to ride. Um, But when we're trying to win and we're trying to improve performance, like that's just foolish. Okay, Uh, this isn't a heritage or a a historical society type event. That's not how we want to be thinking about this. Um, You want to have run an eleven thirty four cassette, and then I think depending on your individual power profile, you could run. 5338 you could run 5236 or you could run a full compact and run um you know 52 uh 34 or 5034 I mean it doesn't really matter I mean like you got to then say okay on the flat you know realistically you know am I going to be like spinning out with the power I do um at whatever you know gear ratio And that has to do with kind of your particular power curve and what that looks like. And if you're a more powerful rider, then maybe there's an argument to have a 5236 or a 5338. But if you're not in that category, um, especially if, you know, I I mean, stereotypically, and I also think in fairness, generally speaking, uh, really smaller riders tend to just not produce as much power per se. So, you know, in that case, it's like, well, if you're going to use a 50, you know, 34, uh, on the front, like, and that's good enough for you on the flat in terms of the kind of power you're going to be able to do, then go for it. Okay. But, you know, I think the idea of using a, you know, traditional fifty-three thirty-eight is, is overrated for the vast majority of people. And I think that you'll always have to say to yourself, I need to be there at the end or it's not going to matter anyway. Okay. So, but regardless of what you're running for chain rings, you need to run eleven thirty-four on the rear. And then I think an issue then becomes that for some people they want the spicy componentry, right? They want the nice fancy stuff. They want the Dura Ace or want they want the, you know, SRAM axis, you know, in the ETAP and blah, blah, blah. And I get that. You know, I think it's a part of the fun of cycling specifically to be able to look at all of the stuff and you know, have the stuff on your bike that you, you think is cool. But I'll be totally honest with you. The benefits of a, you know, Dura-Ace rear derailleur versus a uh, 105 rear derailleur um, are basically negligible, okay? Um, that's You're basically looking at a huge markup in pricing, okay? And you're going to lose weight just through sweating in the race that's going to vastly exceed whatever the weight savings of that are. You know, if you can only get a long cage rear derailleur in 105, then get that. Don't not get what you need as a consequence of that. I, um, you know, one of my road bikes, for example, um, you know, I'm guilty of having uh, four bikes at least. Um, we'll leave it, we'll just leave it at four. Um, it fluctuates from year to year, I think right now, four is a number I'm willing to admit to, but um, you know, one of my road bikes has, you know, the, the, the top fancy Dura-Ace and then, you know, another road bike has the Ultegra, but you know, I, you know, run for the cassette. I just get the, you know, the, the quote unquote cheap, um, you know, 105 cassettes because number one, they're way less expensive. Number two, there's no decline in in performance value. I don't care what the marketing says. It's just the marketing. It's a bunch of nonsense. And I can get the 1134. And if you think about cramping, um, it's something that I think often happens at the extreme end of muscular exertion. And I think it's emblematic, though, of how much additional work and stress you're putting on the body when you don't have the right gear ratios. And that when you look at... People like, for example, Chris Froome, you know, famously winning the Tour de France on, you know, with cassettes of 32 or 34 uh, teeth. Like, if it's good enough for people to do that, like, why would anybody else in the cycling, uh, competitive cycling field, you know, think that they can't run that? Because when you're going up Sherrod Road, you know, you could be doing the exact same watts, but if you're doing it at 50 RPM versus 85 RPM, that's going to make or break your whole day because it it's not equivalent. It's a significantly different strain. You can find yourself over ventilatory threshold, too, um, because you're grinding this incredibly horrible gear, or you can find yourself staying in control because you're able to spin, right? If you heard that expression, spin it to win it, I think there's a lot more truth to that. Um, than we might think, but that equipment piece you want to have that 1134. That's honestly more important than the weight of the bike um, or anything else, right? Because it's about applying your strength, okay? Um, and and hopefully you're going to be a powerful athlete. Hopefully you are not going to be thinking that this is all about being as uh, svelte as possible, right? You want to be strong and you want to be powerful, and then these gearings uh, really help you with that. I mean, for my part. Um, you know, I have always found this to be true—that having access to the easier gears, and even with training, like it has made training so much better because I'm just not getting a bunch of muscular fatigue for no reason, um, and I'm able to train more and improve faster. And then when I need to put out um, the, the bigger power or push the bigger gear, I'm able to do so um, with competence. Um, and uh, my brother has said, you know, an idea which I think is a common idea of like, well, you know, if I can't you know, if I can't do 85 RPM in, you know, 38, 28, then I'm getting dropped anyway. And it's like, well, that's only true though if your smallest gear is 28 because you could drop that down and actually you would be able to keep up, right? So it's kind of a misnomer to think that, oh, I don't want to give myself that option. And I think it's just, again, traditionalism. So before you even get to the starting line, you need to have an 1134. And if you're not running an 1134, um, in training and racing, you're giving yourself a huge disadvantage unless the whole race is really genuinely flat or basically flat. Um, you should be running those that cassette. So, another point on the on the gear setup um, in terms of the cycling gear in gen- general. There's nothing wrong with mechanical shifting. Okay, I have mechanical shifting on you know three of my bikes, and I have electronic shifting on one of my bikes and the electronic shifting is great. And the mechanical shifting is great. It's about, you know, maintaining your uh, equipment. If you're taking it to the shop and getting it worked on, that's good. Um, replace your chain. Okay. Replace your chain, replace it before the race. Okay. Um, I've heard people say that you need to break them in. Um, I don't think that that's true. Uh, I'm not a mechanical engineer, so I, I will acknowledge that. Of course, I don't pretend to be expert in everything. But to me, intuitively, like it's a piece of metal that's machined, um, is not a piece of shoe leather. Um, you don't break it in. Like what happens is, the second you start to use the chain, it starts to move towards the point of being worn out. And if you uh, get a chain checker, and you know, I've had this before. Well, I'll, I'll ride a chain into the ground to where the chain checker is just like, it's just totally beyond the range of the chain checker. It's been stretched so much. And then when you put a new chain on there, it, you know, it feels different. Is it, I don't know to what extent it's improving things. I mean, it must be giving some level of improvement. I mean, how much of that am I actually feeling the improvement versus how much of that is just sort of meeting my expectations of it being in some way dramatically different? I couldn't really say, but You know, if you give yourself that sense of being um, more powerful and more efficient, you know, that's a great feeling. So, have a new chain, put that on there. Have a plan for drinking and eating. Uh, Training will help with this significantly. You will find through training that you will not constantly be getting hungry in training. Um, One of the benefits, I think, of improving lactate threshold is not that you don't drink water, you should drink when you're thirsty. That's why you experience thirst, it's the body's mechanism. For regulating its need to intake fluid, but because you're working more efficiently, you're not overheating and to the same degree, like your core temperature is more under control. So that could be really um, one of those benefits. And ironically, what can happen is you can start to become relatively unconcerned about longer distances. But you know, recognizing that if you're racing, um, you know you're going to be using a lot more glycolysis than you might on your training rides. Just just basically say that you're going to be consuming more sugar, and you know when your body recognizes it's consuming a lot of sugar, it's going to send out signals to get more food. And you know, it's like they've uh, studies have suggested, and I think that these make sense. Um, that if you rinse your mouth with sugar water. Uh, You know, people have better endurance than if they just rinse their mouth with uh, just plain uh, uh, unflavored or um, no additive water, just regular H2O. Um, You know, you don't see that same extent because the body wants that surety, right? So, part of what you're eating is to get the body to like stay calm and right to keep the central governor from freaking out um, and and trying to slam on those brakes. So, another thing you recognize too, though, is that when you're training in, uh, a certain part of the country or you know, elsewhere, if you are an internationally based or internationally competing athlete that you, know, you need to think about what is the climate of this actual race event. And the reality is it's extremely hot and it's extremely humid. And the combination of those things means that your body's going to really want additional water. And so you need to be taking water every lap and you need to be drinking um, plenty. and if you don't want to drink it, then dump it on your head. You know, I mean, but don't, you don't want to be in a position where you're um, getting desperate for water. Um, If you have it, drink it and, you know, know that you're going to get more as you come back around. Um, Ice is also a good idea if you have a strategy for ice. You could consider, I haven't uh, experimented with this myself, but I think the potential of something, if it works as promised, which is always a huge caveat, but uh, if it works as promised, uh, getting one of the core Sensors, which is a supposedly um, is determining measuring your core body temperature, um, and it gets uh, clipped onto a um, chest strap heart rate monitor. That could be something that could be beneficial because if you have the ability to monitor that, you know, if you're looking for other ways to help manage your core temperature, like putting ice down the back of your shirt or. Down the back of your shorts, if that's feasible, that's actually a really good way to uh, cool yourself off. Or just like, you know, having bottles of ice water, right, and just taking the whole thing and just dousing yourself with it and then taking hand-ups of the water bottles that you're going to drink. Like, all of those things are good. Um, If you can get your bottles with really cold water, that's also helpful because if you're ingesting colder fluid, everything to help the body feel Um, feel and stay objectively, subjectively cold, uh, or cool is really important. Um, And if you have worked with core temperature, you can probably get a sense of like, well, when do I really start to struggle? And that can help you pace yourself and think about, okay, how can I ride more efficiently? I got to try to keep my core temperature down. If it's getting higher, what can I do to um, address that? So those are some sort of like, uh, strategic factors that sort of exist in between the space of training and preparation, but also um, between on the other side, the sort of like actually getting in the race. What about when we're in the race? Okay. So I like the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. Rope a dope is the name of the game um, in most racing and especially in cycling. Play into people's desire to. Uh, work as little as possible. Do not give people a reason to do work to try to make it hard for you. Uh, Don't give them a reason to test you or give them a reason to worry about your ability. Um, You want to be a snake in the grass as long as you can and as much of the race as you can. You don't want to be showing your hand, um, getting people to be worried about you. You don't want people to try to race Aggressively against you. Okay. You want to be able to sit there, go along, you know, give the impression that you're struggling, you know, because then if people see you, um, and I think honestly, if you're an outsider, I think that the sort of like established uh, in crowd of elites, especially people who are racing on world tour teams, kind of like expect them, uh, their immediate uh, trade team peers to be keeping up because that's sort of like, well, of course. Right. But if you're the outsider and you're not on one of those teams and you're there, it's going to be like, well, you're kind of like that the new kid. Um, and and they're gonna bully you. Okay, and they're gonna to try to beat you up and, and get you out of there. Cause part of it is even if it's just unconsciously, it's gonna induce some sort of level of insecurity of like, oh my goodness, you know, how is this rando, you know, keeping up with us, the special world tour riders, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I'm sort of hyperbolizing, you know, people's mindsets, but I think there's that sort of default if it's going to make people wonder, you know, okay, well, we need to get rid of this person because it's not a good sign that they're here because we don't know who they are. So what does that say about us? I think it's sort of more of an instinctive level response. So don't give people an incentive to gang up on you and get rid of you. Because if people start sort of just like through that sort of mob mentality, decide they need to attack you out of the group, that's a problem. So, you know, but again, if you're drinking lots of water and dumping water on your head, then that's another way where you're killing two birds with one stone, you're a doing what's best for your race and keeping your spotty cool. And you're, you know, working, um, to avoid getting, you know, distressed from being really thirsty because it's super humid. Additionally though, you're also, uh, I think really doing a good job targeting, um, you know, that mindset, okay. Of, of the other riders. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's honestly, it's a little bit art of war like, and I know the art of war is one of those books that, people read and don't understand, but like to try to like, be like, oh yeah, you know, I read the art of war. I'm an athlete. And it's just like, okay. But one of the concepts is, is really, you know, and most of the concepts are pretty basic. Um, but maybe that's the actual value of it is it's articulating things that, you know, people should understand. Um, but like making people think you are, um, close when you're far away, making people think you're far away when you're close. And really what we're just saying is, is deception, okay? Making people think you're strong when you're weak, making people think you're weak when you're strong. And essentially you could say, you know, don't think about, um, now is not the time to be seen as competent, okay? Now is the time to be seen as incompetent, okay? Until it be, benefits you. If you find yourself in a situation where it's a reduced group and there's a sense that there are other people behind maybe trying to come back, you know, giving that sense of competence... Um, is like, okay, well, we want this person here in this group because they're contributing um, and they're helping with that. But otherwise, like, you want to be seen as, you don't want to be seen as a threat because you don't want people to respond to your presence and try to eliminate that threat. And that's where, you know, that art of war concept, trying to get your opponent to see what you want them to see. Think about, you know, what kinds of cues you react to or you pick up on. Uh, with people with their body language and then try to give off the body language that is going to be to your tactical and strategic advantage, okay? Because if you've been indicating that, that you're tired, you know, um, or that you're kind of like on the limit, then people are going to start to discount you and they're not going to try to like bully you into being uh, on the front and wasting energy because a part of playing rope-a-dope um, is like you don't want to be taking any pulse, Okay. Do not take pulls under any circumstances unless you're in a situation where you know you have made a you know finishing move um, with a couple other people, um, and you're sort of like trying to ride away from a a chasing group, and where it's in your interest to ride away from the chasing group. Um, but you know, with this course, you go up a short hill before you turn left for the finish line. So the reality is, I think that um, there's an opportunity for people of um, different aptitudes whether that's you know sprinting on the flat or attacking uh up a short climb you know being a really you know explosive punchy rider over a rise i think the reality is coming to the line in a reduced group is also totally fine so i think you know flogging yourself in a breakaway if you feel like it's using energy like who cares just torpedoes the torpedo the breakaway let, let it get caught unless it feels like you know the exception to this was it would be if the breakaway you think well this is just going to stay away and if I drop back from this or even if I try to disrupt it you know it's still just gonna go to the finish line but you know in that case like okay I could see contributing but even then you want to stay within your limits so maybe go from pretending to be strong to then pretending to be weak. So that people will sort of expect you and to not be able to take pulls, and if you're an outsider, you know that again works to your advantage. People aren't going to think that you're you're awesome. I think the other complicating factor here is well, what happens if you have a team or you don't have a team? And I think if you have a team, I think you need to be honest in like what is the physical capacity of your teammates to contribute. Because sometimes trying to ride as a team when people don't actually have the fitness to do that can just make things worse. Like you don't, you want to be riding at the most efficient point in the group. And if a teammate, um, you know, is like, well, I need, we need to be doing team things. And I guess I sh- you should be riding on my wheel, but it's like, if their fitness isn't there, you know, and they're, you know, struggling to, to keep, you know, the whole point is that they should be making it easier for you than it would be on your own. And so if the opportunity costs is it's easier on your own, you know, just have an honest conversation with that and just be like, look, you know, it's easier for me to do this. This is what I'm going to do. You know, let's, you know, let's ride together. But, you know, I'm trying to follow you or follow your wheel just isn't working for me. If you do have a team that's super strong, I think then the question is, like, are you actually the prioritized rider? If you're not the prioritized rider, I guess you're kind of like SOL and you would have to, like, you know, mysteriously get in a breakaway, <laughs> you know, by accident or something if you didn't have, quote unquote, permission to do that. Um but if you're on a team, you know, I guess the goal would be to rec- be recognized as the best rider on the team. Um, and if you're not, then that's sort of limiting. And I think that's where in some ways, uh, being on a team but not having teammates at the national championship, could that be beneficial to you? Because and this is no genuinely, and I, I wanna be clear about this, uh, this is genuinely no knock or criticism of of the the teams um that are in the U.S. that are not world tour level teams. But I just think the reality is when you look at that landscape, it's really hard to have the infrastructure where there's sort of like any kind of like performance management. You know, shout out to any uh, teams out there. If you want consulting on performance management, you know, reach out to us on the podcast. We'd be happy to talk talk to you and talk about some ideas and strategies that can be used to try to centralize that. But, you know, for example, one of the things that I would want to be doing um, you know, if I was working with the team in a performance management role, is I would want to be like, okay, what's our standardized, you know, measurement or assessment? And I think taking, for example, the lactate threshold test as a protocol and saying this is our protocol. Um, if we have a team camp, you know, somebody's going to bring, you know, a, a trainer, a Wahoo kicker, and we're going to go through and everybody's going to do this test, and we're going to establish a baseline and then you know the responsibility of the athlete is to improve against that baseline. And then, you know, they have the autonomy maybe and and probably should have the autonomy to say, okay, you've got to go solve this problem. But like we really want to see you at this state because strategically if we can be at this state, we believe that's going to give us a competitive advantage or it's going to allow us to perform better as a team at the national championship because quite frankly if you do not have an aggregate level of lactate threshold development across the whole team then you know it's going to be hard to really implement team strategies and you might want that to happen but people's physical fitness might just be limited by that and then what that opens the door to do is have conversations where you can say okay well you know you're not exhibiting this improvement you know right you know periodically we're you're, you're retesting this throughout the season you know when you come together for a race you know And you have a bunch of people there. So, oh, you know, Thursday, day, day before, you know, hey, we're all going to do this because the protocol for lactate threshold is not fatiguing. So you can just do that periodically um, and be collecting data every, uh, you know, six to six weeks to two months and getting that information, and you know, looking at that, what does that look like? Are people making progress? You know, having conversations with people, supporting the athletes, not telling them. Um, what to do you do not want to take away people's sense of autonomy purpose and mastery but it's just giving people information like are there things that can help them train um you know is there information that they want are there resources that they want so like i as a performance you know management consultant um you know i would want a conference with different athletes and be like well what are you doing how are you feeling with your training you know, what are some things that you're, you're currently doing? What are some things that you would could try differently and, you know, come up with different suggestions and ideas and strategies genuinely in collaboration with the athlete and, you know, the athlete, you know, walking away from that and being like, OK, I have some new things that I'm going to try and trying to create a culture on the team of, OK, we're not just here to race. We're also here to become fitter and that becoming fitter is going to make this experience more fun and rewarding. So if you have a team, you know, that's what needs to be happening across this timescale. Now, I would personally advocate for if I was then, you know, coaching an athlete, advocate for these kinds of concept-based training developments of let's train towards, you know, these periods of training that will really directly um, indicate an improvement in fitness. But if I was just working in a performance consultant capacity, you know, I would want to, you know, look and say, okay, what are things you're doing? You know, Are there things that you have thought about trying? What are some things that you could try to do differently? Could you get more out of it? Not to tear down the approach or the mindset of the athlete, but just to sort of say, okay, like you did this test and we're seeing this. I believe that you can show more improvement or if you're stuck, I believe that you shouldn't be stuck. Okay, so if that's true, then you know we must need different things. Right? Let's come up with ideas because sometimes, like we keep doing the same thing as athletes because we don't have any other ideas, right? Um, and then you know again, preserving the autonomy of the athlete is really critical and important. And then you're you're empowering them by giving them more information, right? Giving them knowledge, being a resource that's available to talk to them. And if you have that level of development, then that opens the door to doing some really different stuff on a team level. And I think that since we're talking about in the series, uh, women's pro cycling, uh, in the United States, I think there are a lot of, um, domestic elite, you know, level teams or, um, you know, non-world tour level, uh, American women's teams that have a lot of potential, but just aren't applying this kind of like performance management approach, you know, and again, right. Give us a shout out if you're curious or you want to learn more, I'd be happy to talk to uh, anybody who's interested. Um, so if you don't, though, have that really specific team development, that's where, you know, it's really up to you to really conserve your energy. And your goal is to keep up. And what we know is this race is going to be attritional. Okay. And that just means people will be getting dropped. You're not going to have, you personally will not have to get people dropped people will get dropped because of the course, you'll get dropped because of the weather, people will get dropped um, because they're just not having a good day. Um, people will get dropped because other riders will be quotes quotes animating the race. And you let that happen. And so the hope is that, you know, you're then there at the very end. And when you go up to the finish, when you get to that climb, you know, I think the best move is to just go bananas up that climb and just keep going hell or high water all the way to the finish line. And don't be an ass if you win, you know, be respectful, be considerate, but mostly just be normal. You know, I think that it is important, you know, if you climb, um, you know, to the top of the mountain here to, you know, not make other people feel looked down on just be normal, you know, and I say that because I think, you know, that's where you get the most value out of this success. Because if you can be normal, right, and you can talk honestly about what you did, um, then you really get to have that impact of moving the needle, you know, and that, you know, falling into that trap of sort of regurgitating sports cliches, you know, because when you have a moment like this, it's an opportunity to develop your career trajectory as an athlete and presenting as somebody who is knowledgeable and was thoughtful and, you know how to really, you know, engage process in their development and you know put that on display. Um, I think that's what makes people stand out and be unique is being genuine. Um, you know, but that's my two cents on that. I think having not won uh, any national titles, I don't know if uh, that would be something that's really feasible or realistic, but you should be there, you should be on top and you should be really, feeling that all of this effort and process and time that you put into this development has really been validated through that. And that's the ultimate test, is that if you get to the race and you win, then you know it worked. But it's also true that if you get to the race and you were there and you were competitive and you see the possibility of winning, but you don't, I think that's still just as valuable as actually taking first place. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cat's Run. This has been the last episode in our Win Pro Nets series. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this series of episodes on our podcast. We're going to be doing other series in the future where we talk about training and preparing for different races and different disciplines of endurance sport running cycling different kinds of races within those domains if you have particular kinds of races or events that you would be interested in hearing us explore on the podcast send us a message you can follow us on our instagram page at black cats run we'd love to hear from you and hear your ideas we're also available for consultation whether that's on an individual level Or if you and your cycling team are looking for some new ideas about how you can coordinate performance development as a whole, also, we would be happy to speak with anybody about that. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.